Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? I just wanted to do something. And so I literally fall into experiences. So I've always been really into self-development. I've always been introspective. I've always been into health, about well-being. But I just thought that was my hobby. I didn't know I could create a job, a career out of it, because that was not really my programming when I was growing up. It was like, you know, doctor, lawyer, banker, like a proper job. We are all seeking freedom in some way or another. And many of my guests over time have said that freedom was their biggest driver. In reality, we all have the desire to be free to choose our own paths. For our guest on the show today, that search for freedom began at a German international school in Hong Kong in the 1980s, and it continued throughout her life into her 40s. Simran Sondi is one of three siblings, born in the UK to Indian English parents. Her father was in banking, and a career opportunity came up which involved moving the family and relocating to Hong Kong. It was a shift to a new country and a colonial culture, which for a six-year-old was very difficult. It was those formative years that started her on the path of struggle and a search for freedom. Of course, her daily life in Hong Kong gave her a privileged background, but that path was structured and almost set for her. Growing up in Hong Kong, she was always the outsider and keen to leave as soon as she could. There was no question that she would go to university, but it, was her, but it became her opportunity to get back to London. So she attended the London School of Economics and studied international relations and economics with a plan to be a war journalist. However, the LSE is a shoo-in for the banking industry and they were the only interviews that she was getting. So she started a career as an investment banker. Although banking was not her first choice, it was an exciting career and it gave her much of the freedom that she was craving. However, she always felt undervalued, the outsider. And as a woman in banking, it was not an easy journey. However, despite these challenges, she stayed in banking for 12 years until the fallout from the financial crash kicked her out of the industry. Our conversation is the journey as her career endured many twists and turns with years in different industries from luxury hotels to holistic nutrition and finally culminating in pharmaceuticals. 
That journey took her across continents and a myriad of roles. Transformation became her nemesis. Having to start from scratch multiple times has defined her life journey. She became the renegade, discovered her power and that gave her the life and freedom she was always looking for. Today, Simran Sandi walks a unique path. After years of experience, and she uniquely blends her, the esoteric with the practical. She supports women, spiritual entrepreneurs, and those in the transition phase, be it burnout, loss of creativity, or stuck in repetitive cycles. She is an advanced theta healing practitioner and teacher. She uses diverse modalities, including access consciousness, bars, Reiki, body talk, mindscape, and her own channeling to craft both one-to-one as well as a group experiences. So let's join the conversation with Simram Sundi. Where did it start for you? I would have to say because of the kind of work I do, it starts in the womb, right? How you come into the world is kind of going to be a little bit of a taste of how you're going to experience the world. So um, I think I came in raring to go, feeling like uh, I, I don't really want to be here. What am I doing? And then kind of figuring it out. And I think that's been kind of the course, the journey that my life has taken, I find myself in situations really excited and then thinking, how the heck did I get here? So that's kind of been a theme for me. All right. So what, where did it all begin for you? I live in Paris and um, I am of Indian descent with a lot of other mixtures. Uh, but I spent my the beginning of my life in England. My dad, he's English, and then his career took him to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So I went from living as a baby, a, a child in the UK in Greenwich, and uh, moving to Hong Kong, going to a German international school, um, all at the age of around seven, six, seven, formative years. And I would say that move has marked the point of my life, I would say, where I thought everything was about struggle. Mm. And since then, I've lived in many other places. I've had many careers. I've gone through lots of, um, let's say, identity shifts. But I feel the root of what was really crystallized with the move to Hong Kong um, came when I was around seven years old. I mean, that would have been a while ago, Hong Kong, wouldn't it? Was that was that pre-handover to China? That was way pre-handover. All oh, right. Okay. So we are talking a real colonial city, basically. Totally. And you know, it's a bubble because it was like one of the last colonial vestiges of the 20th century. Yes. And yes. Um, my parents moved there in 1984. And the handover was in 1997, literally the year that I started university. Yeah. So um, my parents actually still live there, which is another interesting thing. And I wanted to move away as soon as I could. I wanted to go back to Europe. Um, I wanted to have my freedom. And my life has been basically a search for freedom. So when you went to university, I mean, did you leave Hong Kong for university? Yeah, I left Hong Kong. I went to LSE in London. Okay. And uh, so I went down quite the conventional track, you know. So in my family, it's not really an option to not go to university. I didn't even think that was a thing. 
Um, so I went to university, you know, it was always about like be the best at academics, Mother United Nations. So what did you what did you study? So I studied IR and economics, international relations and economics. And um, I actually wanted to start off being a war journalist. So my idol was Christiane Amanpour. Amanpour. I saw her covering all the war zones and I thought, that sounds fun. And um, that's what I initially wanted to do. I wanted to kind of be in adrenaline, hotspot world, like talking about it. Um, and then because I couldn't actually get a job, I applied <laughs> to many jobs. Um, the only interviews I was getting for was for banks. So that's actually how I fell into investment banking. Oh, well, yeah, you can't go. Well, if you do well in that, you can't go wrong, can you really? I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's one of like when you're at LSC, it's a very accounting finance school. Yeah. It's kind of just a given that that's what you do. Of course, there are people who do other things. Um, but it was kind of a layout that we get interviews, we get a lot of the, you know, um, the top banks, accounting firms, law firms coming to LSE to recruit. And uh, that's kind of how I fell into banking. I really, my dad is a banker. So I know kind of. Okay, so it's in the family. It's not as if it was, it's not as if it was a surprise you were heading in. Yeah, and I always thought I don't want to do that because it's so boring. So it always sounded so boring to me. But, you know, it was stable and regular and academic. And it's something that I was very accustomed to at home because my home was stable and, you know, academic and very, um, very safe. I mean, is it boring though? I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of a lot of projections. Well, the thing is, of... it's not boring. But that was my, uh, my that was my understanding out of it growing up watching my dad. But what my dad did and what I did in banking were very different things. So my dad was in risk management, which really fits his personality. He's very risk averse. Um, always making calculations as to what could go wrong because that's actually his job in the bank. Yeah. Me, I worked on the trading floor. That was excitement, adrenaline, watching the markets, speaking to clients, um, kind of living on the edge of your seat every day. Uh, so it is a bit of this rush that I was after. I was after um, excitement, freedom, adrenaline, and banking gave that to me, mm -hmm. but it lasted. So how long did you stay in the banking world? So I stayed about 12 years. That's a significant amount of time. So quite a while, in and out of jobs, um, a lot of jobs in the banking years. What's the average? Um, what's the average cycle in a banking, like a, an employment in a banking? Well, I'll tell you my average cycle, and then what is supposed to be a stable career. Right. Okay. Okay. So my average time is staying in a job was about two to three years. So I moved a lot. Okay. I have friends who are in banking who've really worked up the corporate ladder. They have stayed for 10 years. Yeah. So it's just to say my identity is such that I was always looking for the next thing, never really feeling fulfilled. Um, and one of my core wounds was feeling undervalued. And um, so I was constantly feeling insecure, no matter what I do. I always actually managed to progress up the career ladder. But instead of staying in one place, every time I moved, I'd take a move up. Yeah. 
So I still managed to get the seniority. I just didn't get it in the same place. Did you find as a woman it was diff more difficult? I have to say that when I started, which was in 2000, I don't think it was still the sisterhood that perhaps might exist today. Um, it was very cutthroat. Yeah. Uh, my my boss, well, everyone was a, the, my boss, right? Because I was lowest on the yeah, rung. Yeah, you, you told but me. Yeah. My direct boss was actually um, a <clears throat> Russian lady, not too much older than me, maybe a couple of years, but she made my life a living hell <laughs> for two years. I'd actually have to go into the toilet, like put myself together because I would like burst out crying and then come back to the trading floor and just get on with it. And it was a slog and it was kind of like I went through a hard time. So you have to go through a hard time. No, I, I'm surprised that that exists in a lot of a lot of industries that does. Yeah. And I think there at that time, you know, I don't know if it was being in a very masculine environment mm. that a lot of the women felt like they had to be better than the men even. Mm. But it wasn't this camaraderie like, hey, sister, I'm in it with you. Let me show you the way. It was more like, well, show me you can do this. And actually, I'm going to try and get you to fall, fall so that I can look better. And also, you work for me, so I will take the credit for your work. I'm not saying everyone has that experience. That was just my experience. Perhaps I was unlucky because I do know other women, of course, in, in, in banking who are succeeding very well to this day and they didn't have the same experience. So mm. I think it is very different. But um, I have definitely seen this sense of ultra competition and because my team was an anomaly, we were actually a team just of women on the electronic trading desk. Wow. And yeah, so that was also an anomaly on the floor. Um, and, you know, class of 2000, that was the big tech bubble. And 80% of my analyst class, and I was an analyst when you just start, was fired. Wow. So you're kind of always holding on to the edge of your seats and thinking, okay, is 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 the axe going to fall on my neck now? Am I next? So it's literally, it was this sense of... And I guess you're also paid quite well. So the, the threat of losing that is actually really hard. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, I started working at one of the top investment banking firms in the world at 21. And so you suddenly get this money and you get this, of responsibility and it is a meritocracy so one thing that i will say for banking or investment banking and especially american investment banks is if you do well you succeed mm. um there's uh there's definitely a hierarchy i would say in the first four years but after that if you keep going and you succeed and you're you have initiative you can basically earn more than your boss. Wow. So in that way, it's a meritocracy. And that's what I realized in other industries, because I have worked in other industries since then. And I always found it so frustrating that it was very hierarchical, very structured, very old fashioned. Like it takes you six years to get to the next level and you have to go through X, Y, Z. Whereas in banking, if you're good, the sky can be the limit wow. up to a certain point. And that certain point I realized when I was 
I would say just under executive director, then it starts to become a little bit more sticky. Then you realize you're a woman. And, you know, if you want to stand up for yourself, which is something that is very important to me, even as a young age, um, for me, if something was unethical, if someone promised me something, I would show it back to them. And they didn't like that. No. They wanted you to just conform. And uh, my the last job I had was with um, an English asset manager, very, very old fashioned, old English boys network. And that was tough going for me, I have to say. And probably I was tough going for them because I just didn't conform. I didn't no, you do wouldn't what they fit. said. You definitely yeah. wouldn't fit. Yeah, I was like the troublemaker. Like, so how long did you, I mean, you stayed in banking 10, 12 years. So you obviously yeah. got something out of it. So what pulled you out of it? What, what made you make the leap? <sighs> to be honest, I think I was pushed out. So I, it's not something that I, I didn't think I would be doing something else. Um, I never really felt comfortable there, but I also didn't know what else I would do. Yeah. It's kind of like you just, um, you're taken on this wave and then you're in this particular media, like all your friends are doing the same thing. And so it gets comfortable. Uh, but I was the one who was, I guess, the most, um, uh, the one who was jumping around the most, which obviously means it's not really the right place for you. But I wasn't seeing that then. I was saying, oh my gosh, this is happening to me. I can't find the right fit, right? Um, and what actually took me out was, uh, it started to happen with Lehman Brothers crash and then the financial crisis in 2008. And I was covering mostly hedge funds at that point. And hedge funds were losing money. No one trusted hedge funds. You know, no one wanted to be in structured products. I was selling structured products. And so basically, because there was no faith in my particular market at that point, and I was raising money for hedge funds, no one wanted to give hedge funds any money when the whole world was collapsing. And so I was kind of forced out. And then I was forced to explore other opportunities. And I would say it's taken me probably 10 years of trial and error of getting to where I am now. Wow. So it was not a linear path. It's not like I had anything figured out. I feel like I, I've been kind of in a washing machine until I was about 40 years old, going from one experience to another, floundering, recreating myself, different identities, having to take different exams, retraining. Uh, so I'm really good at recreating myself because I've had to do it so much, wow. not out of choice, out of necessity. So what was the passion in this journey for you? Were you were you passionate about banking? I think I was passionate about success. Okay. It just happened to be in banking. And um, what success meant for me was proving myself so for me I have this strong inner desire to prove to myself I can do something especially because so many people when I grew up thought I couldn't do something and so in a way it was like rebelling against what people were expecting of me because they didn't expect it of me I was like let me show you so you know I didn't like maths what do you do in banking you spend your days on spreadsheets and looking at numbers yeah and then I was told, well, you've changed careers so much. No one is going to get you a job. And then I kept getting jobs. So almost like I felt it was like the fuel to prove people wrong. 
that's no longer my fuel, but kind of I was passionate about succeeding on my own terms. And that just happened to be very tumultuous. And for me, success meant um, money because money gave me freedom. And freedom for me was one of my core desires as a kid. So right. again, it all comes down to what really drove you as a child. And for me, it was like freedom to do what I want. And so, for me, so, so I, I'm, I don't want to say, so something happened to you at that boarding school, though, that, at, uh, that, that international cool. school those years mm-hmm. ago, didn't it? Something shifted in you in that school. Yeah, I think not consciously, but definitely my experiences in school uh, definitely shaped. So something created this, didn't it? Like- yes. It was because I always felt like an outsider, an uh. alien. I was this brown girl. Um, it was an international school, so I was not the only foreigner, let's say. But, you know, as a child, it doesn't really matter what anyone else's experience because your own reality, your own experience is what counts. That's what really um, that's what really creates your psyche and your outlook uh, for when you grow up. Because I have two brothers. They didn't have the same experience as me. I have other people who are in the same school and they're like, you don't experience that. And I think it's really important that I make this point because so often kids and their experiences can literally just be shoved to the side to say, oh, it's in your head, right? You created this. That was not what it was like. And for me, it's a subtle form of gaslighting because it's actually really real when as a kid you're experiencing, let's say, bullying, feeling like an outsider, uh, when literally the teachers are gaslighting you, when you're feeling not feeling good in your skin, when you are thinking oh, um, I'm going to have to do better than everyone else just to to get on the same level. Mm. That, you know, also the sense of identity or like, and this is how I took it that like, if you're white or blonde, you're more attractive. So constantly feeling like I'm an outsider. And when I then experienced life, I brought in situations where I always felt like an outsider. Mm. So I really wanted just to say this, to say how we experience life in our formative years, definitely zero to seven. And then we have another stage between 14 to 21. This is this point of differentiation from our parents seeing the world as our own. How we see the world and experience the world at that point, I would say, really crystallizes the kind of experiences we're going to draw in as an adult yeah i agree with you i very much agree with you and a lot of a lot of actual um um educational systems work around that one the stein education does that and i think most a lot of european education systems work from that zero that that absolutely or to seven range they they have they think it's very important yeah it's like discipline, you will mm. do it this way there's no other way rote learning um and, you know, some systems are obviously better than the other. I Actually, the Steiner system. system isn't. The Steiner system is very much open. So when you yeah. when you are go from four to seven, you don't do any any structured learning at yeah. all. It's all about learning to play because play is your work. Play is what you have to learn to do. Creative, it's where you explore your creativity at that age. Yeah. And you develop and your creativity is what the idea is. Absolutely. And actually, I see schools, I see my godchildren at school now in, in the UK. And, you know, they're between the ages of three to seven. 
they're having exams. I know. They're getting tutored. No, let's not don't go down that road because I, I really I really could get onto my high horse about this. <laughs> Me too. And honestly, I, I don't have children, so I don't feel like I can really say what's right and wrong. But it just looks like I remember how it was when I was a kid, and I was like, "You have plenty of time to worry about life. At least use this time to have fun, because who knows when you'll be able to have fun after that." Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. look, you obviously left the banking world, and you obviously tried lots of things. But what stuck? I mean, I, I, I you know, you know, and you must have had some highs and lows in all of this, I guess, as well. I had lots of highs and lows, and by the way, banking was not all bad. It was like a lot of highs, right? Every time you get and a lot of money, no doubt. I mean, it gave you what you need to have. Didn't totally, it? it gave me. I it gave me a sense of self, of yeah. worth, of success. A lot of the things that I was after as a child, it gave me. Yeah. Um, so then I think it's it was really part of my, I would say the whole of my 30s when I was trying to figure stuff out. I retrained as a health coach in nutrition. I um, worked um, on a luxury uh, South African vin, uh, wine estate to set up a luxury hotel. So I was in sales. I um, moved to Barcelona to work for a Spanish pharmaceutical company. So I've had many different iterations and it was literally because I was trying to find what would fit because I didn't really have any idea. I just wanted to do something. And so I literally fall into experiences. So I've always been really into self-development. I've always been introspective. I've always been into health, about well-being, but I just thought that was my hobby. I didn't know I could create a job, a career out of it, because that was not really my programming when I was growing up. It was like, you know, doctor, lawyer, banker, like a proper job. And like health, now it's very mainstream. Well-being, mindset is mainstream. But when I was growing up, that was not really a thing. And so I tried health coaching. I got my my diplomas in it. Um, I had that practice for a couple of years, but it really wasn't sticking. So again, it was this constant search for like, I was working on my own after being on the trading floor. I lost a sense of community, which I realized is very important uh, to feel like you're part of something. And if you've been used to community framework and then you're suddenly doing things on your own, that was a big shock. Yeah. Right. And so then I went back into structure and this time the structure was, let's say, um, in the, in South Africa, it was a global job working under very, very hierarchical structures, which for someone like me um, was very difficult. I mean, that was difficult in every single job. Like you will do this and, you know, you can have great ideas, but actually what you say doesn't really count that much if you're not on a senior executive C-suite position. Well, companies like that rely on structure and, and the totally. structure's top down. They can't have people making decisions in the middle or, or, or going off against procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And it was this sense of you're too young and this is not your role, even though... In, let's say, startups now, it's actually the young kids who are creating innovation because they're thinking out of the box. And for me, I, I, on hindsight now, a lot of the problems, obstacles that I could see coming up with a particular course of action, that actually happened. But they don't want to hear it from someone who's young. No, right? And so I constantly basically could foresee 
train wrecks, but could do nothing about it. And a lot of the times I could see inefficiencies in the system, but literally got it thrown back at my face. So then was, I think, the start of going more into my self-development, becoming more introspective, which leads me to where I am now, because for so long I was working against structures um, which uh, didn't promote individuality, um, being kind of entrepreneurial uh, and really celebrating people for their particular talents because you're literally a cog in a wheel and Mm. you have your role. And uh, I found that confronting. I still do. I do understand certain structures are needed, but I just feel there's so many ways that companies could encourage conscious leadership, could encourage uh, collaboration. And I feel this is where the world is moving. We're not there yet, but for me, I'm seeing very, very patriarchal structures. And not to say that this is a problem of men, it's a problem of everyone, that we've been living in societies which are very much conformist. You will do this hierarchical, dominant. The very word company is a military term. It comes from the design of a a, a military company and and the structures associated with that. I didn't know that, but that, I mean, that makes sense. Now that you're saying it that way, just it's super clear that that's how hmm. companies uh, exist. And But even within structures, you can foster innovation. You can foster uh, individuality. You can foster entrepreneurialism. So that even within your little uh, units, even within your particular department, the kind of environment is collaborative and it's co-created that you want to contribute because you feel like you matter, right? And um, you can have that in the military. It's just, it's not the military as it's been. It's not the company as they have been. But I feel like we are moving towards there because especially millennials, the new generation, they don't like to be told what to do. They like to be very independent. And unlike me, which thought, oh my God, I'm so happy to have a job. They're thinking, what can the job do for me? To come back to finish your question on what made you, you know, do what you're currently doing. It was literally this trial and error, having to recreate myself so many times, bumbling my way through recognizing that very rigid structures don't fit my personality because by now I could kind of see I'm really good at this I'm not so good at this this kind of environment makes me thrive this kind of environment literally takes (laughs) the life out of me so so often in my life I found myself literally swimming in the ocean through a storm and I had to kind of find my way onto like a plank of wood just to stay afloat so this whole thing about failure um, and getting through failure has been a big theme in my life like cycles of uh, birth death rebirth Um, and that's the work that I do now Uh, at the age of about 40 um, I had many many changes in life Uh, again was living in Spain wanted to come back to the UK um, and started to go really deep into more healing work it was at that point to find another job Mm -hmm. back in London 
And I just found that this kind of stuff comes very easily to me. And I love to go into what really makes people tick. I really love to go into what people makes people passionate about their life, about business, for example, but really what makes people tick and what holds them back. So especially around fears, because I'm so intimately related to fear work, um, that's literally what holds us back. I then, um, yeah, for the last four years, I've been doing transformation work full time. So you just you touched on success earlier and how has your success model changed over those years and what's your current success model? So it's, as you said, it's evolved over time. And um, for me, what success means to me is to be able to live life on my own terms. Um, again, it's really about freedom for me. And for me, success means living life on my own terms, having freedom to do anything that I want um, without feeling like I have to answer to someone and yes. justify myself. Yes. So that is a big thing for me. And um, what success has meant to me in what I'm currently doing, which is like my life's work, is to make people's lives better. Because I think I, at the end of the day, we all just want to be happy. We just don't know how to do it. Mm. Yes, of course. I mean, that's the, that, the basic thing is we want to be, we, we want to feel... I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? We want to feel as though everything's secure. And then then we want to find some self-actualization and some self-agency. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially, uh, you know, the last two years that we've gone through as, as humanity, where there was so much fear instilled into people on their survival, on their health, uh, then having to be supported by the state, right? Not being able to, let's say, go to jobs. I think people have become a lot more introspective because we've had to. And that makes us question, what really am I doing? How am I spending my life? I'm, let's say, spending 12, 14, 16 hours a day at a job. And is it literally just to pay my bills in order to just survive? And worse than that, of course, is it pays your bills. But when you suddenly notice that the job you're doing has no inherent value. Yeah. That yeah. you're just a number, right? Well, not just the not being a number. It's just that the, the actual, the thing that you're actually creating or making has no value in the world. It's just yeah. a piece of fluff or something else. Yeah. Uh, but guess what? It's it's like this thing that we use to try to make ourselves happy, to try and make us feel better. We're always searching like, I feel like as humanity, we're searching for things, humans, that try to make us feel good. Yeah. And a lot of the time we go for the instant gratification. So I would say that was me in my 20s. Or the external, oh, don't we? We look, we look for the external, external because we don't realize it's an internal issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people, unless they're pushed or unless, and it doesn't always have to be this, but it just seems a theme that really it's the people who are pushed to the edge, who've had to go through hardship um loss they're forced to be introspective because if everything is kind of swimming along you don't really need to change and i i have to acknowledge i think i come from a privileged background where i didn't have a lot of trauma with a capital t we have our own little issues but you know i had security i had safety i had an education a lot more than a lot of people have and for me it was important for me to I said, when I can give myself the same standard of living that my dad gave me, right, I've arrived. 
And I achieved that at 27 and then went past it. And from that moment on, something changed and I felt like I have nothing to prove. I don't have to prove anything to my parents. I don't have to prove anything to myself because actually I did it. And since then, I got much more confident in my abilities and my ability to negotiate. Because before that, I felt like I have to take whatever they give me. Mm. Because I didn't know what I was good at. I didn't know I was good at anything. Yes, I'd get these jobs. But then, you know, when you start, again, you have to prove yourself so much that you then go, it was my insecurity that was fueling me. Yeah. It was that shame. Yeah. It was like, I have to prove myself. I have to be the best because when I was young, when I was humiliated at work, meant to feel like I'm nothing, be, and you're an outsider, I pushed myself mm-hmm. to succeed in quotation marks. Well, it obviously worked for you. It worked. It wasn't healthy, no. right? Because what was fueling me was shame, yeah, yeah. Um, humiliation, feeling like an outsider. Uh, that was obviously... And some people get crushed by it. You obviously found some way of moving beyond it. Um, I was crushed many times. I'm not going to say I haven't had dark nights of the soul because mm. I have. I remember I was um, I was sleeping at a friend's house once. I was 37 and I had no job. Again, I was between jobs and um, my friend let me stay in her place. And I felt so trapped. I felt like I was looking for a job, just wasn't able to find one. I had good names on my CV, but again, just not able to get an interview and feeling trapped, like running out of money, no place to go. Didn't want to go back to my parents. And like, literally there was a night that I was sleeping in someone else's bed uh, as a guest, feeling like, the world has like my like my grounding has basically gone yeah that's tough and literally i was like i don't want to wake up tomorrow because if this is life i don't fucking want it mm. if if i have to work so hard to get here which is have no money have no savings have no home have no choice i don't want to freaking be here mm. that was i will never forget that moment because i cried the whole night i was literally like Speaking to a higher power, I was like, you take me now. I'm done with this life. Like, there's no point in me being here. What's my freaking point of even being here? If I die today, no one, of course, my parents would notice. But I was like, what impact would I have made? Mm. So I think that started more of an introspective journey for me. And I had to go through a lot of my worst fears. I had to go back home to my parents. I had to start again from scratch. I had to lose all my savings. I had to do jobs I didn't like in order to basically show myself that fears are always going to be there. Am I going to let them stop me? That's the point, isn't it? I mean, as soon as you move up to the next level, there are new fears, new levels, new devils. There's always something happening. Yeah. And that's why fear work has become such a big thing for me, because we all have fears and we all get to say, "Okay, I feel this fear. um, And how much energy do I want to give it? Can I acknowledge that it's there? Can I feel it? 
when they come up, waves of fear, insecurity, anxiety, overwhelm, whatever it might be in that given moment, and decide, I know something's better. I know there's something more for me. It doesn't mean you always know, crystallize what that's going to look like. You just know that I know that there's something better for me. Mm. So we are constantly living in duality. We can hold the fears, notice, acknowledge that they're there, and know that there's something better, and still take action, and still wake up the next day, and still have trust that I might not be there yet, but I know it's there for me. Mm-hmm. So it's this ability to say, you know, it's not like a lot of law attraction work, for example, says you get what you focus on. But as humans, we're multidimensional and we're always going to have fears and stuff and life and obstacles coming up. We can't pretend that they're not there, right? So this whole love and light kind of community where they're like, just focus on what you want and focus on the feeling. And don't think about like your house that's on fire right here next to you. That's not possible, right? But what is possible is to acknowledge yeah, this is a shitty thing that happened to me. No, it's not fair. No, I didn't deserve it. And what am I going to do about it? Because when we put all of our power on something external, as you said before, like looking for validation outside, looking for success outside, when we're constantly giving our power to something else, someone else, an institution, a government, a corporation, a parent, a partner, anyone, then we feel like we're at the behest of whatever they command us to do or whatever they ask us to do. And for me, the principal premise of my work is taking your sovereignty back, making yourself fully responsible for everything in your life, acknowledging that if you take responsibility, you have the power to change it. That's a very good point, very good point. Yeah, because so often we... We're going to come back. I think we need to come back to this because I I, yeah. I want to move us on, but I will yeah. also come back to more about that subject, I think. So yeah, of course. You mentioned um, contribution, mm-hmm. and it's our next question that we need to look at. So, mm-hmm. how, I mean, how, how do you contribute to the world as far as you can see? Wow. So, again, for me, it's like showing people the way back to themselves. It's mm. always, for me, about sovereignty, about you living in your authenticity and you living your authenticity in your authenticity in your soul blueprint the gifts that you came here with and by the way your gifts are linked to your desires and so for me my contribution is to give people uh the certainty that they're able to live lives of more ease more harmony more abundance in all ways, by living in in integrity with themselves. Mm. That's my contribution because that's been my personal journey. Yes, you had to learn that for yourself. I had to learn that. And, you know, so my contribution is literally, I know that this feels good in myself. So even if what I'm seeing on the outside is not reflected back, I know that that's a sign for me to course correct. And I have the power to do that. I'm not going to wait for something outside of me to change before I decide what I'm available for. So again, my contribution is getting people to have trust 
faith in themselves, even when the odds seem to be stacked against them. Because the society that we were living in, the cultural programming, societal programming, patriarchal programming, is literally here to keep us in a box. And my contribution is to offer an alternative. And that alternative is to live life on your terms. And then getting to the core, the basis of what that actually looks like. Fantastic. Wow. <laughs> so how do you contribute to yourself? How do I contribute to myself? I think that's constantly coming back into uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing, mm -hmm. what's important to me, and uh, literally, am I able to sleep at night uh, with my head held high, with having nothing to hide, and literally saying that it's, if things had to be uncovered about me, I would have no problem whatsoever. I have nothing to hide. Hmm. And do you do anything that that's, that 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 you contribute to yourself? You have a process. You have practice that you do. Yeah. Oh, do I have like like a, da a daily life like habits? Well, you know, I mean, I mean, what, contribute contributing to self to me means self care. It means looking after the self. It means a routine. Yeah. That's to me, it does as well. But I, it may mean something different to you. Yeah, I don't think it turned, it's not always, um, I'm cultivating more routine just because I went away from routine for a long time, just because my life was so regimented. Mm -hmm. uh, so after, let's say, my banking experience, my corporate experience for 20 years, I felt my schedule and time was on someone else's mm. roster. I went the other way. So I, I started to float a bit. I was like, I don't have to have a schedule. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And now I'm realizing actually some structure, some discipline is necessary in order to create this healthy balance of masculine and feminine, right? And so for me, when you're saying, what, what, what do you do to contribute to yourself? I'm now going back into creating structures that feel good for me, which is my masculine structures, my inner masculine holding me mm -hmm. so that there's safety, security for my creativity to flow. What do the masculine structures look like? They look like, committing to my health that means moving my body it doesn't mean slugging at the gym it means moving my body in a way that feels life-affirming because I feel like when I feel good in my body my intellect my mind is sharper yes. I feel better right and then uh, in terms of my emotional regulation I have people therapists guides work, um, energy workers uh, craniosacral all kinds of body and emotional therapists that I work with because you can't help anyone else unless you're feeling balanced and as humans we're always going to need someone to talk to someone to give us kind of like a course calibration so I have people like that it's like a support system mm -hmm. Um, and then I feel it's really important to have harmonious relationships. Um, and that's all kinds of relationships. That's with friends, with family, with your significant other, uh, with children, if you have them. It's basically having relationships that uplift you, as opposed to just having people around you just for the sake of it. And I did mm. that for many years. And so choosing the right people in your life for me is part of a very important structure that helps me feel supported and safe. And then the feminine part is the allowance of intuition, creativity, 
the artistry of life. So that's like my meditation, that's my tunneling, that's my creating courses, that's working with clients. Uh, for that, I need my intuition to be very sharp because I work with my intuition mm. on a daily basis. And it's hard to have that flow of the feminine unless you have the structure within of the masculine holding you. So I don't know if that answered your question. But... I mean, it, there's no, there's, I mean, there's no right answer to this question. Yeah. It's, you, it's your answer. It's what works for you. That's that's yeah. the important thing about it. That's how and, I And see I think it. it's about importance to have to, I mean, it, it's very common for people to give and give and give and give yeah. and not, not give back to themselves. So the, that's how that question evolved when I realized. Uh, I had a period of that, uh, of course. That's why I have this structure. Yeah, of course it is. That's where totally, we get because, to Because um, I'm in like a, a service profession, let's say, and I spend a whole day listening to stuff that's going wrong for people, uh, which I actually really like. But also I have to be in a place where I feel grounded in order to have space for that. Yes, so, well, you do, because if you're going to listen to someone's um, difficulties, you've got to be able to turn yeah. around and say there's light at the other end of that tunnel for you. And yeah, and bleep. also be able to hold that space and not la allow my energy to be drained yes. because actually um, I'm not actually using my own energy when I'm doing a lot of these sessions, this facilitation. I'm more channeling. And I'm only going to be able to hold that space if I'm grounded myself. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very important to me, let's say, to be on generally an even keel. It doesn't mean I don't have good and bad days. I still have to show up. Um, but to be as, <coughs> as much as I can create that kind of structure for myself, uh, that's important for me and able to, to be able to contribute. Mm. I need to be, let's say, full my, myself. Mm. So what is the one question that you want people to ask of themselves or you want them to ask of you? This is such a good question. What is the one question I want people to ask me of themselves? I'm all about perspective because I know that a shift in perspective can change everything. So for me, the question, I guess, would be, I'd love people to ask me, Simran, how do you see this from your perspective? Or where am I missing something? It kind of gives me an invitation to like peer deep into their soul. And I love to peer deep into their souls and to be asked, is there another way? Is is I, I, do I have a blind spot here? Mm. And we all have blind spots. And sometimes something that's super glaring to someone else, we won't be able to see. So I actually ask that of other people too about myself. I'm, I'm like, am I missing something here? Have I, this is how I see it. How do you see it? And it doesn't mean you have to agree, by the way. It's not like my way is the right way. It's just, a shift in perspective, people can say things, see the world in a different way, which could open up so many more possibilities. So for me, it is a bit about perspective and the many perspectives open to us in any given moment. Where are we giving a particular, let's say, problem, challenge, obstacle, a lot of energy? And is there another way available that is actually very simple to tap into that might never have occurred to us. So I, I feel it would be that. Hmm. 
No, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. It's quite useful. And, and we all have a different perspective on things. And as you say, when you're working with someone, if you can shine a light in a different direction, it does make a big difference. Yeah, because, um, you know, what one person sees as a calamity, another person can see as an opportunity. Like for right now, everyone is talking about shortages and recession and, you know, do dark gloomy days ahead and other people are like this is the moment that i get to go in and succeed when everyone else is thinking they're going to fail right we certainly are we certainly are at a nexus point at the moment that's for sure yeah millionaires are made in recessions yes they are absolutely so what is it that you do for people and Mm -hmm. how can you who is it you're looking for who do you help and you know and about you know what you want to get from this podcast well, I could say I could help anyone, but the people, the most of the people who come to me tend to be um, women who are at a transition point in their lives and they would like guidance. Uh, that can, most of the subjects people come to me for are money, career, love, health. And um, so what I do is I work with a bunch of different modalities and I'm intuitively guided through my channel, what is the best thing for each person that have different price points to work with me. Um, But my most transformational program container is my Fate Changer program. That's where I use human design, astrology, um, energy healings uh, as a way to basically bring you back to your soul blueprint, to show you some markers, what might be holding you back. Uh, from creating the life that would bring you more ease, more abundance, more joy. Because at the end of the world, we all want to feel more fulfilled. Yes. We want to have a sense of identity, a sense mm. of purpose. And when we're actually living our best life, uh, and it doesn't mean to say we're not going to have obstacles, but when we're living a life of purpose, we get to attract more of the things we want, more money, a job promotion, a soulmate. So it's really getting to a place where you're feeling full, whole, mm. complete within yourself. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do people um, get in touch with you if they want to? What's So, the- uh, yeah, you can get me on um, from my website and um, my social media. So on Instagram, it's at... SSW for wellness, lifestyle. So SSW lifestyle. But yeah, those are two really useful ways to get used to me, uh, in touch with me. There's a lot of free stuff on my social media, especially my Instagram. So there are many, many different price points, but you can find me those two main ways. Well, wonderful. We have those links already, I think, and they'll all be on the podcast app and they'll also be at the website, lifepassionandbusiness.com. So do check them out. Fabulous. So our final question that we get to is, what is the meaning of life for you? Hmm. I think it's joy, to find joy in each moment, um, to look for joy in each moment, um, and to live in the present, to not uh, hark back to the past, to not project what might happen into the future, but literally harness what's available to us, the opportunity in in each moment, making every day an adventure. Fantastic. 
I mean, each of us to our own, and that's what you work with. That's brilliant. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, it's definitely joy. Well, Simran Sunday, thank you so much for being here with me thank today. It's you. been a joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. All the best. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Simran Sonde. If you'd like to catch up with Simran, you can find her at her website, simransonde.com. She's also on Facebook at Simran Sonde. And you can find her on Instagram, on which is SSW Lifestyle. Now, all those links will be available at the website, lifepassionandbusiness.com. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion, a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and the sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions, ebook and worksheets. Now, this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery. And it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it for me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best. <laughs>